Good morning. It is Saturday, April 3rd, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to April. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Michael. How are you feeling today? It's a great day. How are you feeling? You got to go to the dentist. Don't remind me of my dentist appointment. Okay, I just got the jab this morning and I'm feeling fantastic. Did you get yours? Yes, I did. And? I got it at the Javits Center. And I just want to say, after, you know, years of like having people like being told to have no faith in government, what I saw there and the efficiency and the friendliness and the, the can-do spirit made me feel good about what we do here in this country. So I, I felt good. I feel good. And now I got to wait for the second one. Pfizer or Moderna? Pfizer. Me too. As we said previously on the show, it's the Chanel of the vaccine. Yes, it is, dear. I mean, look, I didn't request it, but it just happened to be that way. As everyone knows by now, they have opened up eligibility to New Yorkers for anyone over age 30. And on April 6th, it's going to be anyone over age 18. Now, Michael, you and I barely meet that criteria, but we are very happy that we've had the jab. Uh, I was in tears when I went and got it. I brought my kids because they're on spring break. There were all these lovely volunteers. There was a guy playing steel drums. And I was just a complete disaster. And I spent the entire time waiting in line to explain to my kids the importance of growing up to be scientists and doctors because those guys have gotten us through the past year and uh, we owe them an immense debt of gratitude. A hundred percent. But steel drum, that's where you lost me. There was a guy playing Every Little Thing's Gonna Be All Right on steel drum and he was playing What a Wonderful World and I was just an absolute waterfall over there. I could not help but thank goodness I was wearing a mask so no one could really see me ugly cry. Are you sure you weren't on a New York City subway platform by mistake? <laughs> I'm pretty I'm pretty sure, Michael. I'm pretty sure. I mean, were there some were there some Peruvian pipers playing as well? Because that's all that would be missing. <laughs> you know, I look forward to getting back on the New York City subway because it's been quite some time since I have been. I mean, the good news is I've had my steps in because I've been walking all over the city, but I, I'm certainly happy for life to return to normal. Me too. Me too. Does this mean that we get to go to dinner next week? I think so. You know, it's reopened this week. Was Balthazar finally reopened? I saw that. I saw that on the Instagram accounts of some friends of mine who went and had a wonderful old time. Mm -hmm. 367 days after it closed, as Keith McNally pointed out. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and he, said, he had no. some photographs on his Instagram of people the first night actually dancing in the restaurant. They were so happy. Michael, what do we have this week? There's so much to talk about other than the vaccine and restaurants, although those are two of our favorite topics. <laughs> exactly. You know what I found really interesting this morning that I, it's not in the issue, but you know what I, my favorite story I've seen is today? Headline, French police on trail of international gang of Lego looters. What? Yeah. Who knew? I guess they have collectible sets. Tell me more. As one of the investigators told La Parisienne newspaper, the Lego community isn't just made up of children. There are numerous adults who play with it. There are swaps and sales on the internet. We've also had people complaining their homes have been broken into and Legos stolen. So this guy said, uh, Lego looting, who knew, is a global business. And like according to reports, in 2005, San Diego police arrested a group of women found to have stolen 200,000 euros worth of Legos. And last year, a cafe corner Lego set that cost 150 euros when it is released in stores now sells for 2,500 euros. So it's a black market in your, in Legos. Uh, any of these Lego looters are more than welcome to come to my house and take all the Lego pieces that are stuck in the carpeting, underneath furniture. I mean, I step on them constantly and it's nearly cost me many trips to the podiatrist. So please, I'll send you my address. You are welcome. That would be good. That's actually a good like sort of a task rabbit service, you know, 
Lego looters, come clean my house. Anything you want. It's all hidden treasure. Michael, I think this is going to be a tech-heavy segment of Morning Meeting because we have two big stories in the issue this week concerning Parler and TikTok. Do you use either one of these platforms? No, but Brooke looks at TikTok and I occasionally look over her shoulder or she'll send me something from TikTok. So... I am familiar. I, I parlez-vous TikTok at times. So I am not a TikTok user because I can only waste so much of my life on social media. But I do find that there are some there's some fascinating content on there. And I think it's an especially rich area for comics. Like I've seen a lot of incredibly funny people doing funny things on TikTok. The platform lends itself to that so brilliantly. And of course, there's the dancing. But like I have zero... I've never been a lively dancer and I have no interest in starting now. That's a line from Annie Hall, by the way. Do you remember that? I do. That's why I was laughing. She was quite a lively dancer. So, Michael, I thought Parlor was done. It turns out Parlor is back. And Nimrod Kamer, one of our correspondents in London, has written a, a fascinating and fun piece about uh, the origins of this startup and what happened to it. Yeah. And this is one of those stories, if you're like myself at times, where you're like, you hear about these things on the periphery and like, what, what, what was this Parlor? Right. And then all of a sudden, like, you've got to figure out what it is. And all of a sudden, so Nimrod did a great story here, sort of pulls it all together. And Parlor sort of burst into view back in January on the 6th when uh, the assault on the Capitol started. And it was shown to be kind of like what the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the QAnon shaman and anywhere else was, was sort of using to communicate that day since they didn't trust Twitter or any other sort of social media platform. So especially post-election. So it sort of shows how MAGA world came to embrace it. And uh, but also how it was the strange kind of love child, really, of a Russian woman named Alina. And I can't pronounce her last name, Alina, and her husband, later husband, John Metz, who met when she was on a two-week road trip to the U.S. in Nevada at the Consumer uh, Electronics Show, then he sort of created Parlor and how it sort of got embraced by Trump world. That was a fascinating story that I had not heard before. But also, you know, let's just remind everyone, Parler was also everything he created because there were no content moderators. This is why you end up on January 6th with the run-up to the assault on the Capitol with the election fraud lawyer, Lynn Wood, posted a death threat to then Vice President Mike Pence uh, that just sat there. So, you know, unregulated and uh, unmoderated. But, you know, it was, you can argue that Parler was essentially what was used to uh, orchestrate and document uh, the assault on the Capitol. So fascinating look at how it was built and this strange uh, story of the couple behind it, you know, who, you know, you sort of read it like, well, is she a Russian mole kind of working on behalf of Russia? And, you know, as, as Nimrod also points out, they create this thing which was being sort of serviced by Russian bots as well, but something that would never exist in Russia, of course, uh, because it was it would be too socially unregulated. But um, it's uh, it's a pretty it's a it's a great quick overview and look inside this very divisive and influential platform. Right, and it's a crucible of this time in American history when we have a social media platform that becomes, in effect, an instrument of war. Exactly. Exactly. Let's hope we do not see such history ever repeated. No. Michael, this is too heavy for us, okay? Let's get on to some lighter fare. Want me to tell you something light that I found just just a little bit ago? Please do. Okay. It's not like Lego, but it's kind of light. <laughs> All right. Do you want cheese or wine? Both. Large quantities of both. Okay. But let's, let's start with the wine so I'm ready for the cheese. Okay, really quickly. All right. So there is... Um, Maybe file this under deep red wines. A few years ago, 
there was a, um, these deep divers in the Mediterranean found 168 bottles of champagne in a shipwreck in the Baltic, excuse me. They had been down there for 170 years. They brought them up and when they opened them, they found they were close to perfection, right? They hadn't turned at all, right? So the winemakers started to realize, you know what's great about wines at the bottom of the ocean? Super cool temperatures and no sunlight, just like a great vault, right? So now you've got these wine producers like Chris Dahl and uh, uh, Monsant Michel and uh, Veuve Clicquot. They are now experimenting with putting wine at the bottom of the ocean to age it. And now you want your cheese? Michael, just when you thought that the wine industry couldn't possibly get more navel-gazing, like here they have to go reinvent the wheel yet again. Say, you know what'll work for me? A basement. Someone can just keep that bad boy in a basement for five years. That's all I need. It doesn't need to go to the bottom of the sea. You know, that's everyone in everyone in France too. Like they keep it sort of like in like this this dirty hole in the ground, right? Even the fanciest possible collections. That's where I keep my soul. <laughs> It's a point of pride. All right, then so here's my here's my segue into France then. All right. So there's these French monks who all during lockdown, they have a monastery in the heart of Burgundy, right? And they uh at their, at their abbey and they make a semi soft raw milk cheese, right? And usually they they're open to the public, they sell all this cheese. For the last year they've been making cheese but no one's been able to come and buy it. So they have almost 3 tons of cheese that's smelling up the place and now they need to sell it. So I don't know how that intersects with Legos, but you could probably find a way to do it. <laughs> I'm the market for that, Michael. I like smelly cheese. So I lighten this up. Now now where do we go? All right. Well, we're very light now. Uh, Michael, I have another trend story for you. Tell me. When is the last time you had a massage or body treatment? I hate massages. <laughs> no, that does not surprise me. Okay. Well, you're in luck, my friend, because now... Here's my thing with massages. I'm trying so hard to... Relax. I just tense up. And, and Brooke will tell you, some years ago, our good friend and Richard David Story, when we was editing Departures, sent me to Ojai, California to go to this spa. He's like, you've never been to a spa? I said, no, I hate spas. He's like, I'm going to send you to a spa. And I had to go to a spa. Of course, Brooke was thrilled to go because she loves all these things that happen there. And one of the things I had to do for the story was have a couple's massage. And to this day, Brooke, one of her favorite images of me, she's like, she's like I look over at one point and there's your face. Like, just, I, it, it was though you were being a... Uh, uh, tortured. And it's like, yeah, because it's like, it just was, I, I don't see the point of it. It's like being in a subway car. People just touch you. <laughs> Some people enjoy that, Michael. Okay. We all have different different sensory profiles. Diff- but yes. if, if you enjoy frittage, yes, go right ahead. All right. Well, you, my friend, are in luck because one of the many casualties of the pandemic uh, is the spa and all of the body treatments that they produce. One of our reporters, Laura Nielsen, writes about this this week, and um, she discusses all the ways that spas across the country are reopening. So, uh, for example, at the Four Seasons, Lanai, there is a yo massage self-care treatment, as in do it yourself. It's a private class on the art of restorative, mindful self-massage. Laura does not does, tell us how much this costs, but I'm guessing it's a lot. Self, self-massage sounds like something the Vatican would not be in favor of. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Keep it above the waist, Michael. All right, all right. I'm just, you know. Fair enough. Okay, then meanwhile, uh, at a place in Miami called the Carilion Miami Wellness Resort, you can go, they have a whole menu of touchless wellness experiences, including the vibroacoustic, electromagnetic, and infrared therapy beds. Basically, it's going to help you meditate and warm your body using your own body heat. Fascinating. And then it turns out if you go to the Ritz in Mexico's Baja Peninsula, the open air spa Alchemia has a Shavasana sound room. So basically, this is just a very pleasant room where you can experience the restful 
yogic state of Shavasana. Now, Michael, this is basically like, how can I pay for something that I generally get for free? That's the gist of the story. But you got to admire the inventiveness here. No, and I guess, look, they all got to figure out a way to sort of like transition us back to something, right? So Well, now, now that I've had the vax, I will be going back to Barry's boot camp at some point. I will be going back to my favorite yoga studio in New York when it reopens because frankly, doing yoga like on the Peloton app on my phone is not the same thing. Okay, on the subject of tech, Michael, this week we have an illuminating but also terrifying story by Nancy Jo Sales about the social media star who hates social media. It's Sissy Sheridan, a 16-year-old girl who has 5.3 million followers on the social media platform TikTok. And TikTok, for those of you who may not be social uh, media savvy, like myself sometimes, uh, it came out about a year or two ago. And just in the last year, 2020, it was the second most downloaded app in the entire year. And it's become popular with the youngs, children, adolescents, uh, Gen Zers, because it allows them to create short videos, often humorous, dance-based. Michael, we don't need to subject our listeners to hearing us wax on about a platform that we have not yet joined. We've got Nancy Jo Sales here, and she's very well known in these parts. And by these parts, I mean the world of journalism, uh, not only for her profile writing, but for her 2013 book, The Bling Ring, which was then made into the Sofia Coppola film. Uh, She had a great documentary called Swiped, Hooking Up in the Digital Age. And she also wrote a 2016 book called American Girls, which uh, we will delve into a little bit here. But she talks in that book about social media and the secret lives of teenagers. So welcome, Nancy Joe. For the average person, which I consider myself average, just take us inside what TikTok is and why adolescents are addicted to it and how you became interested in knowing about it. Well, I've been writing about social media and girls in particular, teenage girls in particular, for, you know, going back to 2013 in Vanity Fair. And that's when we started to see a lot of trouble in the world of girls uh, who were using these sites. And that wasn't as often discussed as, as, you know, these celebratory things. This was back before, like, Mark Zuckerberg had to go in front of Congress and all that. You know, this was, like, in internet years... It's a million years ago. In in dog years, it's a million years ago. But it's it it's really just we're talking about 2012, 2013. I started to say just based on what I was seeing in the news, and then started hearing from girls for different stories I was writing, and then finally a book. Wow, this is this is really challenging for girls having this sort of double life now of online life and real life and how they bleed and intersect into each other. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure one of the first people to really write about how much abuse and harassment and sexism and misogyny girls so often encounter online and how is there, there's also this pressure for them to sexualize themselves in order to get likes, because of course, likes are the new currency. Okay. So here comes TikTok really just got popular, you know, very, very recently within a year or two in the past, like about two years ago, it it appears for kids in America starts to get popular. And now you have influencers like Sissy Sheridan who are, you know, have millions and millions of followers. Why? For lip syncing, for dancing, for, you know, these these very, very short videos that they post on their pages that um, are a lot of the times playful and funny and just, you know, the kind of stuff kids kids do in their in their bedroom. But as you read in the piece um, for, for Sissy, it was a lot of 
sexualization and self-sexualization going on, which she was very aware of. And um, this was one of the interesting things about her. I thought that she was so aware of it and spoke about it in, in such an interesting way. My focus is the culture and the platforms and the design of the platforms and the tech bros who create the platforms platforms because they almost all are these kind of brotopia tech bros who create these platforms that in in which younger women and girls find themselves rewarded for sexualizing themselves. I mean that's what that's what the algorithms do. I would shift the focus from like what these what these girls are doing, how these girls are dressing, what are they wearing, to what kind of world is Silicon Valley making for teenagers, especially girls. But I have to go back a second because I think it's important for the listeners to understand that Sissy wasn't Sissy came into this like very consciously to, she set out to do this, to achieve internet fame. And the reason, you know, as, as most kids do consciously or unconsciously, but with her, it was very directed, self-directed. And I think it's important to note that she came to this through, through being kind of bullied and shunned. What do you think is the role of parents, you know, in this universe? I've been so disappointed and I don't even know what the word is. Sad disappointed at how parents don't do anything usually um and even encourage it one of the first things she said to me was tiktok is the most toxic thing and this is someone who spends every day on tiktok and has millions and millions of followers tiktok is the most toxic thing it sucks this is what she tells me she says that she's she knows it sucks and yet she also says at the end of the piece, it's a big part of my life now and I can't do without it. It's a fascinating piece and it's a necessary piece that everyone has to read this week. And I hope and should pass around to other people, whether you're a parent or not, or just want to know how, how the world is moving right now. Thank you both for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. All right, Michael. Well, now that we have that expert opinion, let's bring the subject of the piece on to speak for herself. Welcome, Sissy Sheridan. Hey, Sissy. How are you? We're good. How are you? Thank you so much for doing this with us. Of course. Of course. So Michael and I are new to TikTok, but we joined the platform just to check out your videos. And we loved Nancy Joe's piece about you and this crazy world that you have come into. So one of the things I loved the most about this story was sort of the origin story of how you came on to TikTok. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what was going on in your life when you joined? Yeah, definitely. So I lived in California and I had this friend who like was making them and I was always the kid that was like not allowed to have the public accounts or anything like that like was not allowed to have the Instagram account until I was like actually the age that you're allowed to have an Instagram account like all that so um I was never big on social media like that and then this friend I had he started making them and one blew up overnight and he got like 150,000 followers and I thought that was just insane. I was like that, that you could just gain so much traction like overnight um, was such an interesting thing to me. So I was like, oh, I'm going to start posting videos. Like I'm going to start trying to do this. I think the coolest thing about TikTok is that anyone can blow up on it. Right. So like I was literally like, I, you don't have to be in California or New York or a big city. You know what I mean? Like the one that that first went viral for me was with my my friend from my hometown and we were just in my bedroom making like silly dance videos, not even thinking like, oh, this one's going to blow up. Just like making them for fun. And the next morning we wake up and it's like 6 million views and we're like, 
oh my gosh. So that was more than a fun little dance video in my bedroom. You know what I mean? And then just from there, I continued to make them and use social media and all of that as an opportunity to just, like I said earlier, you know, get my name out there and, and get people's attention while I'm like not actively working, especially during COVID. It's been really awesome. And it has brought in, brought a lot of opportunities to me and, and, and all that. So it's been really crazy. And you got your start as an actress and Nancy Joe writes in her piece about how you were bullied uh, by other actors. God. <laughs> yeah. So I joined, I did this thing called chicken girls, which was a brat show. And Brad is like this um, YouTube channel that does like basically like teen soap operas. I'm coming in with 600 followers. Right. And the rest of the kids there have been doing this for like the past couple of years. Like they were on musically before they've been doing YouTube forever. And now they're on this show. And so all of them have like 6 million. So I'm walking in having nothing. And it's like, like at the time people felt the need that if you didn't have followers or didn't have anything that could help someone out, um, it didn't matter. I was in the same scenes with all of them. You know what I mean? I couldn't at the time make their numbers get any bigger, like, so to say. And, um, they didn't feel any need to, you know, talk to me, be nice to me, ask me to hang out. I literally, since like the beginning, like, I just don't, I never have cared about like that number because it could go away tomorrow for anyone. And then you're still just a person. So I've never felt the need to treat someone differently based on a following or anything like that. Like I still have like five best friends and they're like all my best friends from home. And, and so it's just, it's really different. Um, but yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience to start it all off. What do you want to be when you grow up, Sissy? Like what's your, what is your career path? If you had to guess at this point? Yeah, I, I want to be an actress. Like that's my main thing. If I could literally just start acting and just keep acting and not and not even have to pick up my phone, like I would totally be completely fine with that. But for now, I feel like uh, it is even to me like such like an addictive thing. Social media, it's like oh, I like I need to post today or I need to do this. And so um, when I am working though, when I do have a job, then I'm not like focused on that or like what comments say or anything like that. So definitely want to continue with that and do that because I feel like it also seems more like of like a legitimate like path. I feel like. So Stacey, let me ask, let's talk about the addictive part of social media, right? And and the negative sides of it, right? And, you know, as Nancy Joe says and shows in her piece, and, and again, we're so happy to talk to you because you're basically on the front lines of social media. You're super aware of it. But you also talk in the piece how it can make you feel really depressed too, right? You know, yet whether you're 16 or the age of Ashley and myself, it's like, it's still, you still get ones, your self-worth gets tied up in it, right? And I think you have lessons probably to tell people about how you get through that, right? Or how you got through that. Yeah, totally. So that has definitely been also a very interesting part of being on social media and all of that. People, when you do, like if you, some lessons that I had to learn putting myself online and all of that, when you are on social media or things like that, people that aren't also doing the same thing as you will not understand that even if you get a thousand positive comments, if there are like three or four even that are like, oh, she looks really bad in this or, oh, she's gaining weight or, oh, she just like, you know, awful things. That's obviously what you're going to focus on. Like, it's hard to separate those things. So when I was getting all of this hate, like back last year, it was so hard. So I thought like my logic is right. If you show people that you're hurting or you're being affected by what they say, they're going to be like, oh, maybe I was in the wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have said that I overreacted, but no, the internet right now does not think like that at all. 
I po- I posted this. I used to post videos where I would be like upset or like my my whole life's on social media, right? So I would share like parts where I I was upset and I was crying over comment or I I just was so depressed I was not getting out of my bed. Like I, I'm trying to post content. The only thing I'm doing the entire week is crying. You know what I mean? And all the comments are like, oh well, you you signed up to be on social media, so you should be used to it or you should expect it. And that 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 comment like always ugh like bothers me the most sometimes because. Like, everyone is not always going to like you. You can be literally Beyonce, and there's going to be someone that's like, oh, I don't really like Beyonce's music. I'm not saying you have to like my content. You don't have to like me. And I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying that just because someone has a social media platform doesn't mean that it's okay for you to then go around and be like, you should kill yourself. Or you look really, like, bad. You're just, like, things about your appearance, all that kind of stuff. And just because you have that space to comment, it doesn't mean you should. And I feel like people have a a really hard time thinking about that and, like, separating those. Like, anyone could go viral. Anyone could get some sort of popularity. Like, TikTok thrives off of negativity. I think all social media platforms, there's going to be hate that comes with them. You just, like, you can't do anything about that. doesn't mean it should, but it is going to happen. But TikTok, like, will purposely put videos on their For You page. Their algorithm is literally thrives off of hate and negativity. Like, there are, like, no rules when it comes to, like, how awful a person can be. I, I feel like it's just, like, I've never seen a social media app that just has so much hate spewing from it all the time. Two important questions for you. So one is, as you said, like TikTok spews hate, right? Do you feel conflicted about then being part of that platform? I used to have to take like breaks and all that stuff. And it probably would have been best for me to maybe put my phone away for a month. But um, now I feel like I, I just had such a hard time, like not letting how like other people thought of me ruin my life. Like I literally cared more about what other people thought of me than what I thought of myself. And it's so hard trying to please like at the time, like 2 million different people who all have something new to say about you. And honestly, like it was such like an awful mentality and just way to be living my life. Um, I literally wasn't, I was in bed crying every day, like wanting to die and having a a million people tell me to kill myself. You know what I mean? Like it was bad. Um, And now I just feel like, I'm so more focused on like my friends at home and my boyfriend, like my family, like those people and keeping them around me because I don't hear those things from them. You know what I mean? And you got to stop listening to the other people that are constantly, everyone has something to say about your life and you have to just sometimes step away from that and focus on something else. So is it, is it fair to say then that you've learned to have a, there's Sissy the character Right. And then there's sissy in your private life. I mean, have you learned to sort of like, because I think that's what we're any anyone who's on social media, again, whether it's sissy, you or Ashley, like you can get yourself, your identity. T- if you're if you think your identity is online, you're going to get crushed. Right. You've learned to sort of separate the two. Yeah, even Nancy and Joe and I were talking about this. People literally would go on Twitter and write awful things about her. Like, we were literally talking about this. She was reading me comments that she got. And, like, it can literally happen to anyone. Like, it, it's not limited to anyone who happens to have a platform. Like, I know kids from my hometown who who this happens to. Like, it, it, it's not limited to anyone. I've learned not to show my emotions on social media or to, like, 
plan the comments in advance. I think that this is also fascinating. And I love how you give us such a thoughtful insight into this world that we think we know a little something about, but it turns out your perspective is really invaluable. So thank you so much. Of course. Well, listen, thanks for being here and thanks for being part of the piece, the Nancy Joe's piece. And, and we hope to talk to you again. Of course. Yes, I would love to. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Michael. Well, be- before we head out for a restorative, relaxing, and outdoorsy weekend, do you have anything at all you could recommend for me? I do. I have two things. One, it's a podcast that's not ours. Sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. It's called Family Secrets. And it's a thing like, if you've all been locked up, you probably know a little bit too much about your family in the last year. But Family Secrets is hosted by Danny Shapiro. And if you read, uh, she wrote a best-selling memoir a couple years ago called Inheritance. I- I- every every week, she speaks with someone who's got a family secret and what they've learned about that, that secret and how to transform their lives. So highly recommend it. It's very compelling and uh hosted with with great sensitivity by Danny. And uh, if you haven't read her book, Inheritance, I encourage you to do that as well. And speaking of books, there's a book I want to also recommend, if I may. It's a new book by a good friend of mine called Thomas Dija, and it's called New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. And um, if you've ever read The Power Broker, Robert Caro's great book about Robert Moses, this book is sort of picks up where that left off. And it's it's his look at this immersive history of New York's post-70s transformation and the lessons it offers for the city's future. And it sort of opens in 1978, shortly after the city's gone on the, the verge of bankruptcy. And it takes in the retrenchment during the Mayor Koch Renaissance, the Dinkins years, hip-hop, 9-11, Bloomberg, the transformation of, of Times Square. And it's just this super readable, compelling history of the last 30, 40 years. And I think it's especially good reading right now as we look at the, where where New York goes post-pandemic and how it rebuilt itself. So can't recommend it enough. New York, New York, New York by Tom Dija. Marvelous. That sounds wonderful. And you, my dear? Well, I'm going to brag a little bit, Michael. I have seen the first three episodes of Mayor of Easttown. Well, you know, if you get special links or something, why don't you share them? Because I'm greedy. No, I'll send them to you too. Um, This is a new show that's coming out on HBO on April 18th. It was written and created by Brad Inglesby. And you probably remember him from Run All Night, which is a film that he wrote. And he also did uh, The Way Back, which was the wonderful Ben Affleck movie that was about a basketball coach trying to improve a high school team and get his personal life in order. Anyway, he has now uh, tackled small town Pennsylvania with the mayor of Easttown. And this is just a fantastic series starring Kate Winslet. And Kate Winslet stars as a small town Pennsylvania detective and she's investigating what else? A local murder. And meanwhile, her personal life is in shambles. So you have these dueling narratives that intersect in some very interesting ways. And it really gets at the nature of what it's like to live in a small town and especially the darkness. It also goes into, you know, family history and how storylines and characters from the past can end up defining the present. So it's got a lot going on. I I really recommend it. There's some incredible acting in this series. I cannot get over uh, the roster of talent. It's got Kate Winslet, uh, Julianne Nicholson, Jean Smart, Evan Peters. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Doesn't it also have Guy Pierce? Yeah, Guy Pierce is in it too. I mean, it's it's wild, I like incredible. We, we should probably have the casting agent for this uh, on the show, but we'll talk about it some more once it comes out. But I uh, highly enjoyed it and certainly put that on your radar. It's on my radar. I'll put everything on my radar that you tell me to. All right, Michael. Well, on that note, we've got lots to do this weekend. On that note, you got to get to the dentist. Oh, God, don't remind me. All right, will you please read us out? 
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us. Peace!